At this point, we turn to God's Word, to the text that is in uh, your bulletin, Galatians chapter 3. So at Trinity Church Seattle, the church where I serve, we've been uh, working through the book of Galatians. Uh, and so in, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is, is really laying the groundwork for what now in chapter 3 is the, the central argument that he begins to make. Uh, if you're familiar with Galatians, you know that there was a false teaching uh, at, in, the church, or in the churches in Galatia, and the people were being led astray by this false teaching that was adding to justification by faith alone in Jesus uh, works of the law as some admixture in this uh, important way to be accepted and justified before God. Not just faith alone, but also faith and works. And Paul uh, wants to disprove that. And he really gets into it here in chapter 3. So I'm going to read uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. So if you haven't already, please turn uh, to that passage in your Bible. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Listen carefully. This is the word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather... The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our God, we realize this morning that we have nothing outside of your great promises in Christ, but inside those promises, Lord, we have eternal life. So help us not to long for anything outside of what you give us by grace through faith in Jesus, but help us to receive all of what you have given us. By your grace, Father, and only through our faith in your Son, Jesus, work in our hearts by your Spirit so that we would hear and understand your word this morning, that we may love and obey you. 
for all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it probably happens hundreds of times a day in our current media landscape. If someone tries to get you to buy something or watch something or read something or believe something or think a certain way about something or raise your awareness to something using a strong display of emotion. Emotion and emotionally charged rhetoric is how our culture communicates and reasons. Now, that's not entirely a good thing, certainly, but at the same time, there's something inherently human about that. We are compelled by human emotion. For example, I w- uh, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon that a pastor friend of mine preached at his church. And I was doing it as I was answering some emails. So I figured this is, prob- this is just going to be background noise, background edification as I'm answering my emails. But just three minutes in, he, w- he didn't even make it through the text that he was reading he started weeping. You see, what happened was, the text had been so real to him as he was preparing his sermon that week, and it had impacted his life and was so applicable to his life that it brought up in the moment this grief that he had. He couldn't get, get through reading the text without being emotionally overwhelmed. And what that did for me as the listener, especially as his friend, that totally changed the experience. I couldn't keep answering my emails because it felt like a betrayal to a friend to treat as background noise uh, his grief and sorrow. It stopped me in my tracks, and it actually drew me fully in to what he was saying. So, if you were there, as, as this letter, the, the letter to the Galatians, was being read, at this moment, as we trans, transition into the beginning of chapter 3, something very similar would have happened, because Paul shifts the tone of his communication. He's focusing now squarely on the Galatians, and he ratchets up the emotional volume, and he's so obviously fired up with grief and anger, and also this passion and earnestness that just comes through, that you couldn't possibly have looked away, even if you were before. In fact, I think we could say the emotion in his communication is itself a communication about what he's saying, that it matters. It matters a lot. Justification by faith alone in Jesus matters a whole ton. What you think about how God thinks about you really, really matters for your life. And Paul would say, it's actually worth getting fired up over. So my hope for our time this morning, and this passage is is to simply reinvigorate some of that passion. Uh, it, It would be great if we all left here being passionate for the gospel And in that way, being better able to walk in its freedom. So be passionate for the gospel and walk in its freedom. And I want to look at that under three headings. First of all, the gospel's simplicity. Secondly, the gospel's history. And then the gospel's promise. The gospel's simplicity, history, and promise. So first of all, the gospel's simplicity. The gospel is beautifully simple. But the problem in Galatia is that there were these false teachers that were complicating it way, way too much. They turned the gospel into God justifies and accepts you by faith, but it's incomplete. Your justification is incomplete without the law added in at the right points. And you know what? The Galatians, they actually started to believe that. So what does 
Paul think about all this? Well, I think we can paraphrase. What? Are you crazy? Have you lost your minds? Are you under a spell, Galatians? You should know way better than this. You should know way better than this. You've lost all moral and spiritual judgment at this point. Don't you remember when Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified for you? Now, when he brings up that statement, I think he's talking about his own gospel preaching. He's jogging their memory. He's saying, look, the Son of God hanging on a tree to redeem us and reconcile us to God, that is the only way to be redeemed and reconciled to God. But why would you want another way as well? He moves on into verse 2 and he says, okay, Galatians, I have one question for you. And then if you notice when I was reading it, he follows it up with five in a row. And that's a bit disorienting, granted, when you read it. But that's actually a part of Paul's effect. You see, he was using this device that's called diatribe. And we use that word today, uh, but not always in the same exact way. Uh, but when Paul was writing, the word diatribe meant a slew of rhetorical questions that were meant to have, well, they had fairly obvious answers to the hearer and anyone else that was present. And it was meant to leave no doubt and kind of build this insurmountable argument. And, and it reminded me, as I was thinking about it, of the first time that I swam in the ocean. Uh, I, I didn't swim in, in the ocean until I was uh, an adult. Uh, I didn't grow up next to the ocean, so I didn't have much of a chance when I was a kid. But as an adult, I waded in waist height into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and confident that I'd be able to, to swim just as I had in many lakes as a child. And then a wave hit me. About waist height, this wave hit me and it knocked me off balance. Now, I didn't fall down at first, but it, it was kind of disorienting. And then, next thing you know, another wave comes. And this one knocked me over. And I was, you know, in the water trying to like get my balance again, figure out which way is up, and then get up again. But before I could get up again, another wave hit me. And then another wave hit me. And then another wave hit me. And I realized I am not going to be able to stand in the power of these waves. And that's kind of what Paul is doing. Wave upon wave, each question a little bit more destabilizing than the last, hammering home his point. Galatians, did you begin by faith or works? Well, faith. Well, having begun by faith, do you really think that you're going to grow by your works? No. Well, do you really think that God has blessed you and even worked miracles in your church by faith or by works? Well, the faith. Faith. That's the answer to all his questions. And we need to realize that because it's so easy to complicate. It's so easy to complicate that. You know, we think, sure, grace got me in the door. And I'm super thankful that it did. But there's got to be another way a more complicated way, an additional way to grow and to progress and to make sure that I'm in God's good graces, right? And then there's, there comes along this teaching or another option, the answer to our prayers, laying out laws and commandments for us to make sure, an insurance policy, finally something to do, some way for me to prove myself. Now, that ring true in your church? It does for me. I mean, we're threatened by anything that we add our faith, our Christian life that doesn't arise from grace in the first place. And a timeless example of this, uh, applicable to what Paul is talking about, is moral performance. 
So what do you think makes you acceptable before God? Is it the fact that you didn't drink too much last week? Is it the fact that you did really good at reading your Bible and praying last week? Or is it that you were really good about recycling or you didn't have a single racist thought last week? Now, I hope all of those things are true of you, but not because that's what justifies you. Because those things don't justify you. What you need in order to become a Christian is the same thing that you need in order to grow as a Christian. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Because His grace is a gift and we receive it not because of anything good that we have done, but out of His infinite love, He gives it to us. And the beautiful simplicity of the Gospel is that once you've received it for the first time, the Christian life is basically living in that grace and getting deeper and deeper in that grace, experiencing it more, loving it more, learning more about it. Once we have been given God's grace so that we're not knocked over by the waves of His judgment, we are able to swim in the ocean of His grace for the rest of our lives. So don't complicate that. It's an amazing truth. Now, as Paul continues to argue this, he goes on and talks about the gospel's history. Not just simplicity, but our second point this morning, the gospel's history. Grace is amazing, but it's also not just a nebulous spiritual principle that uh, exists kind of out there and, and we live by it. Grace is rooted in history, especially in the history of God's people. And the history of God's people proves Paul's point. Now, this would have resonated with his hearers because, you see, the Jews were really good at connecting their religious life to their history because their religious life was, in a lot of ways, the same thing. It mapped directly onto their national life. The separation of church and state did not exist in Old Testament Israel. And so when Paul talks about the works of the law, the works of the law is not this nebulous spiritual principle for them, but it's actually an enduring identity marker of what it means to be a Jewish person in the first place. You see, they believed that the Torah was God's greatest gift to the world and he gave it to them. And so all of their traditions uh, that anchored from their observance of this law they, they saw that as who they were. Now, I, I think this is important for us to see as well. Because in our culture and in our churches, it's impossible to isolate our morality from our culture and communities and our traditions. And even how we rate our own moral performance and how we often think that God rates our moral performance is culturally based in a lot of ways. Let me tease that out for you. So Paul makes this genius move in verse 6 where he brings up Abraham. Now, why does he bring up Abraham? Abraham, of course, is this giant in the history of the Jewish faith. He's this uh, trailblazing figure, a forerunner for the Jews. He was the original recipient of so many laws and, and promises of the covenant so you can understand how people could easily get confused thinking that obedience to the commands was how you stayed in the, the ranks of God's people. To be a child of Abraham 
to them must have equaled obedience to the law. But Paul is saying, you've actually got to relearn your religious history according to grace. You see, he quotes from Genesis 12 uh, and says that God already counted this man Abraham righteous on account of his faith. And then later from Genesis 15, where God promises to bless all of the nations through the offspring of Abraham, and this is before he even received the promise and the command of circumcision in the first place. So what does that mean? That means that God graciously chose Abraham, elected him, and saved him before he had the opportunity to merit that salvation in the first place. So for God's people... Law-keeping never was meant to function as this entrance exam into God's kingdom. Instead, because of the gospel of grace, the only requirement is to receive God's gift and then to live out of that gift. Therefore, to have faith, Paul says, equals child of Abraham. And, and that's a huge statement. But he even goes one further in verse 8. He says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So that means the Jewish nation never existed so that more and more people from around the world could come underneath their national and cultural umbrella and get blessings from God that way. Instead, the faith that should have defined them from the very beginning was always meant to go out to the nations and extend and transform other cultures so that other people would hear about this God that saves by grace. That was the plan all along. And of course, our gospel history this morning is that that has happened in Jesus, right? So what does that mean for us and for, for this church? How do you build a church community? Faith in Christ, faith in Christ, faith in Christ. And if you add anything to that, well, it creates crippling spiritual problems. Think about it from the religious histories of the Galatians. Before Christ, they had a pantheon of different gods that didn't love them, that required them to appease with sacrifices and other kinds of religious offerings and things. And... They, did, they were not loved by their gods. They just had to avoid their wrath. The Jews, on the other hand, rightfully reveled in the fact that they worshipped the one true God who was not manipulated by human activity and who was not capricious in the ways that the other gods of the nations were, but he's righteous and good and just. But the incredible irony of these advocates for obedience to the law in order to fully have God's grace is that to a Gentile, to the Galatians, how they would have read that is that we need to treat this one true God the way that we used to treat our old gods. And that, that same kind of thing can happen. That same kind of message can come from us if we make anything more important or even as important as God's grace. Even if it's something as uh, as. As, uh, as, as, as precious to us as our, particularly, uh, our particular church history or tradition or the Reformed Christian heritage that we enjoy. And you know, I, I realize that I say that in a church that is over 50 years old in terms of the, the, 
the origins of its community and congregation. Um, I, I, saw, I saw that on your website, so I have done my research. Um, it, now, think about it. 50 years is a pretty long time. And 50 years of being a congregation, being a people, serving God, being faithful to him. Uh, if, think about each of those people along the way. Some of you knew, like, have known most of those people, probably. Each of those people. And the way that you have constructed this community that leaves a mark on what you are now. It leaves a mark. There is a distinct culture at Wiser Lake Chapel. It's been built over the years. And, and some of you might be uh, so new that you're still trying to figure it out. And again, some of you uh, have been here for a while and, and you know how to swim in these waters. And maybe you even take the, the uniqueness of your culture for granted. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That happens everywhere. But I think it's important to avoid uh, making one of these two mistakes that you can make. Uh, one is to let that history and maybe that culture of the past, a, a way that ha things have al always been done, to let that become as important as the gospel of grace and to kind of become a kind of entrance exam into this community. Or the other hand would be ignoring your history trying to have some perceived current momentum or end goal or the direction that you want to go become more important than the gospel of grace. And then that will lead you to all kinds of problems too. Now, I, I don't know your church well enough to, to go into more specifics, but I think those two options are always there and they're mistakes that we can make. But here's the goal to strive for. Here's where I think balance is found. In a church like this, celebrate your gospel history and consider how your culture might need to be constantly reforming according to the gospel. But you see, the only thing, and wouldn't it be great if the only thing that outlives the previous generations, maybe even this building itself, if, if you go on for another 50 years, if the only thing that outlives everything else is the gospel of grace itself, that in 50 years there'll be a church that, that, that worships God in truth and preaches the gospel of Jesus. That's the goal. That's, how, uh, th 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 that's the only cultural marker of a church that matters. And then everything else, if it springs out of that, it will bring life and restoration to people that need Christ. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying to yourself, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm not so sure about all this. It, I'm not even sure that I believe God, that, that I believe in God. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I need to be accepted by God this morning. I don't think he exists, so why would I need to be accepted by God? This isn't a problem for me. Actually, not so fast. I think it's a problem for you too. Because what is your desired community? The, the, the friend group, uh, the, the family group, the, the co-workers, uh, the, uh, the, the, the online gaming community that you want to be a part of, that you want to be in on. Think about that. Even if you don't believe in God, think about that. You see, all of those cultures and communities 
have traditions. They may have been set two weeks ago or 200 years ago. But your desired group, the group that you want to be accepted in, probably has a way of determining acceptance based on how it's done things, based on its traditions and its values. And I imagine that you crave acceptance in that community that to some degree you conform yourself to whatever that morality is. We could call it the works of the law so that you can be in. Now, this could be a certain way to dress, a certain way to look or talk. It could be something a little bit more invasive, like a way to think, a way to act, a way to believe and feel. So what's your anxiety level this morning? Because you feel like you don't fit into the place, to the culture, the the, the community, the people that you really want to be accepted by. Have you compromised on a belief recently? Maybe something that you used to hold dear just so that you could be a part of a group. And if you've done so, how how do you know that it's enough? Have you bled enough for them? How do you know that? And will you ever bleed enough for them? When is too much? Because know this, if, if you ever step out of line, if you ever show that you're really not like them, don't expect to be shown grace by these kinds of communities and cultures. There's, there's no grace for you in a world like that. There's only curse. There's the silence and the alienation, even the cancellation of not being in, of not being good enough, of not being accepted. And listen, that's how the pagan religions did it back in the day. When the Jews were getting it wrong, that's how the Jews did it as well. And even in in Christian history, the church has gotten it wrong and done it that way at times. And certainly that's how our modern culture does it. And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to free us from that. The only thing that will free us from that is grace. That's why he tells us about the gospel's promise. Our third point this morning, the gospel's promise. Paul makes another shocking statement in verse 10. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So think about it. If you're a Jew, this is incredibly offensive. Because remember, the law is the greatest gift of God to mankind, and he gave it to you specifically in your culture and people. And now Paul is saying that the thing that makes you most blessed over everyone else is actually what's cursing you. So, from the Jewish perspective, you can see why the Gentiles would be seen as cursed and you as a Jew blessed. Because the Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have the Torah. They don't have this cultural head start that God has given them in the race. So, if you're going to identify with any community, surely it should be the Jews because then you get a head start and you get, this, uh, you, you get a fighting chance. But Paul says, no, that's not the right way to see it. Once again... Paul quotes Old Testament Jewish scriptures to prove that trusting in even the law won't cut it. He says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So this idea of the curse, the curse of the law. For starters, it's really important that we get a distinction right off the bat. 
in order to understand what Paul is talking about. The curse of the law does not mean that the law is cursed or evil or flawed in some way. The curse of the law is that you and I are cursed and evil and flawed. Why? Because as we went over with our confession of sin, the law is good and we have broken it. So in in a way, the law really is an entrance exam into God's kingdom. The only problem is we've all failed. We've all failed. If you've trusted in your goodness, whatever that standard of goodness is, even if it's God's own law itself, you failed the test. If you're running around the track trying to win God's favor by your own foot speed, you've already lost. It's like you got to the starting blocks, but the race was already over. And what does it matter if you have a head start in a race that's already over and you've lost? You see, there really is no point in trying to justify yourself because you can't and I can't. And that's the curse of the law. Now, yeah, this is not a whole lot of fun to hear. And, and, and if you're one of those that has been around church for a while, maybe you've, you've come to this church for a long time. You grew up in the church. You're familiar with the gospel. One of the things that you might be doing right now is just kind of like switching off because you're saying, okay, I know what's coming. I've heard this before. He's talking about sin. He's going to start talking about grace in Jesus. I know that. I've trusted in Jesus. I'm, I'm good. It's great that he's saying this, but I don't really need it right now because I already have it. Resist that, okay? Resist that urge. And here's why. Even if you know for sure that you are a Christian, I'm so thankful for that. But what's going to happen this week is there's going to come a point where you realize that functionally, you have been trying to justify yourself. You've been relying on your goodness in some way to be acceptable before God. And that's going to frustrate you. That's going to make you feel a bit alienated before God. And you're going to need somewhere to go with that. Okay? Even Christians struggle big time with this. But on the other hand, okay, if, if, if you're sitting there saying, this is crazy. Why would anyone believe something so depressing, like a curse for breaking a law? Well, don't walk out the door until I tell you two things. All right? First of all, don't discount something because it's hard to believe or because it's hard to hear and you don't want to believe it. If something, especially if something rings true experientially for you this morning, if you feel that struggle, if you feel the curse of alienation from God or for other people, don't ignore this. This is your way out. If, if, if what I've been saying brings up further questions or doubts, then explore them. Talk to a pastor. Don't ignore this. If there is a God and if His curse is over you, but if there's a way out from that, then you really need to hear this. Because the second thing you need to know before leaving today is the reason why Scripture tells us about the curse is because it always tells us the way out as well. Verse 13 is a great example of this, where Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Of course, that's referring to the cross of Christ. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's basically saying to the Galatians, Galatians, listen, you're in danger of the curse because you are rejecting the gospel of grace in Christ. What's the solution? It's not something new. I'm not going to add to something that you've already heard. I'm going to say the same old thing. Stop running. Stop trying to win God's favor. Go sit in the grandstands and watch as I publicly portray Christ as crucified again. Paul goes right back to the cross of Christ, dragging the Galatians with him and says, look there. Look there. Look at Him. Look at Christ. He is your justification. Because the curse that once lay on you and me for our law-breaking was placed on Christ on the cross, and so it no longer is laying upon us. We are free from it. And what that means is that the righteousness that bursts out of every fiber of Jesus' perfect being is now the assurance of our faith. It is our identity. It's our justification. The Gospel really is that simple. It's so simple that even when you ruin it by adding to it, the answer is to always go back and look at the cross. Look at Jesus. So if you want to be justified, rely on Christ and Christ alone. If you want to grow in your faith, rely on Christ. If you want to be a good person, rely on Christ. And remove from your mind any image of yourself running around that track trying to win God's favor. Because that track will lead to death and frustration. I said, replace it with the image of Jesus with you on his back running that track. And he runs the race because he is good and powerful and strong enough to finish it in time to justify you. And he carries us right into the presence of God the Father. And he says, Father, These are the sons and daughters that you sent me to save, and I have saved them. I have died for them. They are righteous in my blood. They are alive in my spirit. And they are yours. I have won them. So accept them, Father. And and, and it's almost as though you can hear the Father say to Jesus, Jesus, my son, you are right. I sent you to save them, and you have saved them. They are beautiful and righteous and good. When I look at them, I see you reflected in them, Jesus. They are my delight. They are my children. And I will be their God forever. See, friends, isn't that a better way to be justified? Isn't that a better thing to build a church culture off of? Even to reform a church culture? A better way to live with one another? That is a better way. That is the way to live. You know, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To be redeemed is to be free. So simply, walk in that freedom. But make sure to walk only in that freedom. Amen.